0: What is Jesus going to do? How would Jesus spend his final night with his disciples? We will see throughout the chapters a lot of verbal instruction to his disciples. But first, John tells us of an action of Jesus. Yes, he speaks and instructs, but there's, a, there's an action Of Jesus at the very beginning, an action of service. Jesus knows He's in the final moments of life and He decides what? I'm going to wash my disciples' feet. And in doing so, Jesus displays for us what His heart is in serving, He gives us models for serving, and then He calls us to imitate. His serving. So let's go ahead and look at our passage for this morning. It's in John chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. You have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. So as we begin this passage, John begins by setting up the context for us. If you remember, which you may not, all the way back in November, at the end of chapter twelve, was kind of the end of Jesus' public ministry. Now we see he's gonna spend a lot of time with these disciples in the night leading all the way up to his crucifixion. And so at the end of chapter twelve, he kind of gave this final gospel invitation for people to come and believe in him. He stated that earlier in that chapter that his hour of glorification has come, his hour of death has arrived. And that's what we see John really narrow in here when we get to verse 1, right? He mentions this is right before the feast of the Passover. Now for us, when we think Passover, we now start to tie it in because of our Christian history, right? We tie it in with what? Our communion, right? That very near to Passover, the last night Jesus had with his disciples, he took bread and wine, and we do so as well when we take communion, which we have today. But for Jesus and his disciples, and for our history into the Old Testament, it also reaches all the way back to the actual Passover, right? Where they would take the blood of the lamb and put it on their doorpost so that death might pass over them. So John is deeply connecting all these things together. When he says the feast of Passover is near, he's reminding us of what? that just like the lambs who had to die and have their blood shed for death to pass over, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is about to have his blood shed. And it says here, Jesus knows what's about to happen. If it wasn't clear enough, by the Feast of Passover comment... John makes it abundantly clear. Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. He knows his time is running out with his disciples. He knows the pain and the wrath that is approaching, and what does he decide to do? What is he feeling? What's he going to make a priority in these last moments he has? And we see as we get into the second part of verse 1, what it is that's Christ's heart in serving. His heart behind his serving. Because what does John tell us there in verse 1? Having loved his own who were in the world. So first we see Jesus has a deep love for his disciples. In fact, much of what we've seen in these first 12 chapters could be described as Jesus displaying his love. All of this teaching is displaying his love. All of these miracles displaying his love for his disciples. Because there's a whole lot of people that saw these things and walked away from Jesus, didn't they? We saw at one point the entire crowd that Jesus fed, right, with the loaves and the fish, walked away from him, not long after he fed them. But here we see that Jesus deeply loves those who belong to him, those who are his own and not only has he loved them but then what's the end say he loved them to the end he his love for them never ceased and it seems that what john is trying to reveal to us is jesus's motivation for what he's about to do jesus love for his disciples is what drives jesus to get down and wash their feet the heart behind Christ's servanthood is his love for those who belong to him. And this makes perfect sense, doesn't it? It may not make perfect sense why Jesus would choose to love us as a group of sinners or these disciples as a group of sinners, but if he chose to love us and chose to love them, it makes perfect sense then that he would serve them. Right? Those two things fit together because you don't serve those whom you don't love at least not in a God-honoring way, right? You may accomplish a task out of obligation, but that doesn't mean you're truly serving someone, right? Remember, the title of this entire message is what? Christ-like servanthood. We're not talking about secular servanthood. We're not talking about serving as just a general concept. We're talking about how can we serve in a way that reflects the way that Christ serves. And Christ cares about your motivation behind your service. Anyone ever had a child who picked up their room with more sighs and groans than you could ever imagine? Have you ever been in the car with someone who just got done serving, but yet they complained about the serving their entire way home? Or have you ever seen someone volunteer for a duty that needs to be done here at church, and yet later that week they're gossiping about that church family? That's not love. That's not Christ-like servanthood. Christ's love for his disciples means he sincerely cares about them, values them, to the point that he wants to put them above himself. Jesus could have easily had his own bucket list of desires, couldn't he? I just want to spend one more night with my mother. Or... I created the most beautiful place on earth, but I want to see it through the eyes of a human being before I die. But no. Jesus loves his disciples to the point that he spends his last night washing their feet. Which leads us to the actual act of service that Jesus displays. So we see Christ's models for serving. Now I say models instead of model, plural instead of singular, because we see in Jesus' conversation with Peter while washing feet that this act of washing their feet actually points to something deeper that's about to happen. So we want to look at this present time example of washing their feet, but also what that's trying to foreshadow. But first, before we even get into the actual act of the foot washing, John begins to give us this explanation of Jesus' status in the world. Look at verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So we find out first that the devil is very involved at this moment in history. Now, if you look back at the Gospels, we don't see much about the devil's personal involvement, right? We see Jesus casting out demons, and we see Jesus maybe giving teachings on the devil or mentioning the devil about how he might be influencing life in this earth. But we don't actually see that the devil puts something into someone, right? We don't see him that active, but he is very active here on this last night of Jesus' life. That tells us something, right? He's deeply concerned. The devil truly cares about this Christ. And we see why in verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, so now we see even more about Christ's position, Christ's status. God has given all things into the hands of Jesus. Jesus knows where he's come from, he knows where he's going back to. That it's sent from he's been sent from God the Father, he's about to go back to God the Father. This is a high status, is it not? Sent by God himself, about to go back to the Father. The one who has all things in his hands? And the devil is deeply concerned about what's about to happen to him? All of this, John is uncovering for us just how elevated Jesus' status is. How high up his position is. All things in his hands. Now why would this matter? Why, Why would John take the time to describe in these verses that the devil is deeply concerned about Jesus, that Jesus has all things, that Jesus knows where he's come from, knows where he's, he knows, knows his position, he knows his status. Why would John care so much about that? Because of verse 4. He rose from supper, and he lays aside his outer garment, takes a towel, and ties it around his waist. Now, while at first glance to us, we're like, well, that makes sense, right? You don't get your outer garment dirty, so you take it off and put it aside. So that would make sense if he's about to wash feet. But while we look at it deeper, we realize it has a tremendous significance to it. True servanthood, Christ-like servanthood, requires you to lay aside your high position. If Jesus had decided to hold on to his position, his rights, his status, washing someone's feet was out of the picture. Doesn't happen if you maintain that position and that status, right? The one who holds all things in his hands doesn't sink down to touch the dirtiest part of someone's body. The one who comes from God doesn't need to submit himself to the ones that God has created. But Jesus does. He lays aside this position, this status of being over all things in order that he might serve those whom he loves. So this first model of servanthood we see is the model of the foot-washing Jesus. Later in this passage, we see that John gives even more descriptions of Jesus' status. Look at verse 13. What's he say? You call me teacher and Lord, or Lord could also mean master. And what's he say? You're right. That's what I am. I do have a higher status than you. I do have a better position than you. I am the master. I am the teacher. Jump to verse 20. and just the second part, what's he say? Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So Jesus is saying, if you're going to receive me, that's receiving God the Father. He's the one who sent me. What higher status could anyone possibly have other than to be sent by God himself? Oh yeah, let me tell you, verse 19. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe what? That I am he. Or as we've seen throughout the Gospel of John so far, I am. Now what's that supposed to provoke in our minds? Exodus. The burning bush. Moses is asking this burning bush, this voice of God talking to him, he says, okay, you're sending me to Egypt, you're sending me to Pharaoh, who am I supposed to tell them sent me? And what's he say? Tell them, I am sent you. And Jesus says here in verse 19, that you might believe, I am. So now, Jesus isn't just sent by God. Jesus is God in the flesh. The very one who spoke to Abraham, Moses, and David. The one who did create all things, and still at this very moment has all things in his hands. And what's he do? Again, verse 4. Takes it off and lays it aside so that he might do what? Verse 5. Poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Takes off his clean outer garments, his high status of holding on to all things to do the dirtiest work possible. Do you remember what John the Baptist said about Jesus when Jesus was first coming onto the scene? I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. John the Baptist, on his best day, his day of being the most clean he could possibly be, still isn't worthy enough to touch the dirtiest part of Jesus. And now we see the reversal of that. Jesus, as the one more clean than we ever could be, takes it all off so that he might come down and touch the dirtiest part of us. Imagine this society. You walk everywhere, right? No car to drive in to keep your feet and your clothes clean. No Amazon delivery so that you don't have to go to the store. No indoor bathroom. And all you wear when you walk from place to place is sandals. So your feet are actually touching this dirt and this dust all around you everywhere you walk. And let's not forget the same path that you walk. How many animals have walked and left a trail behind them? And Jesus takes off his status to wash, to touch these dirtiest parts of his disciples. Including even that of Judas, the one who is about to betray him and send him to the cross. What an act of servanthood. What an act of love for his own disciples. But remember, I said, this foreshadows what is about to come. While we see in this first model the foot-washing Jesus, as we get into his conversation with Peter, it also points to the model of the cross-carrying Christ. The washing of his disciples' feet is a signpost that should lead his disciples to the path of Calvary. Look at the conversation starting in verse 6 he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand, right? Pointing to something that will happen. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. So Peter objects, and in some sense rightly so, right? Peter has this understanding to some extent. He knows what Jesus's status is, And he says, Jesus, if anybody should be washing anybody's feet, it's us as the disciples should be washing yours. And he's right in some sense. But then catch what Jesus says at that back half of verse 8. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So Jesus is telling Peter something here, that to receive this foot washing is not just a momentary dip of his foot into the basin of water, but it's displaying whether Peter actually shares in Jesus or not, whether he actually has believed and trusted in Jesus. And Jesus goes on in the following verses to describe it as being made clean, right? Verse 9. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. To receive Jesus' washing of their feet is a display of whether you have already been made clean by trusting in Jesus or not. Although Judas proves himself to be the one exception, right? That he receives the foot washing, but he doesn't receive it by faith. He turns around and betrays Jesus. And now we know this cleansing that Peter has, that the rest of the disciples have other than Judas, happens by what Jesus is about to do as he goes to the cross. So this example of servanthood in Jesus washing his disciples' feet is actually seen in an even greater degree when Jesus goes to the cross. There, he bears the weight of our sin. It's at the cross where we see Jesus not just lay aside some outer garment, but lay aside all of his rights, all of his position of being the Son of God in order that he would accomplish the dirtiest work that could ever possibly be done. He doesn't just get physically dirty, but he takes on our sin. He who knew no sin became sin. He doesn't just wash our feet, he cleanses our hearts from all unrighteousness, forgives us for our sins, past, present, and future. And so that now leaves us with the question, as we look at these models of Jesus, the foot-washing Jesus, the cross-carrying Christ, what do we do with these models? What do we do with these models of Christ's servanthood? What are we to do now in our lives? And that brings us to the final point, imitating Christ's servanthood. Jesus does not just want his disciples to receive his washing, both washing their feet and washing their sin. He wants them then to make their lives a life of serving in a way that imitates what he has already done for them. Look at verse 12. So Jesus said, just as I serve you, you are to serve one another. And he states it quite candidly, doesn't he, there in verse 15. I have given you an example. You do exactly as I just have done. We as disciples of Christ are meant to imitate Christ in his servanthood in this world that we live in. If Christ is our master and we are the servants, we are to follow what he has done and set as our example. So how do we do that? And I want to just look, as we've seen throughout this whole passage as we read it, four principles, real quick, of Christ-like servanthood. Four principles. First, Christ-like servants have been served by Christ. You will never serve in a Christ-like way until you first realize and appreciate how you first have been served by Christ. You saw it in Peter's response to Jesus, right? Peter says, you don't serve me, I need to be serving you. And Jesus makes it abundantly clear what? He must receive Christ's service in order to have any share in Christ. And the same goes for us. When we look at what Christ has done for us, we must be humbled by that recognition, That the creator of the universe, the one who holds all things together, the one who was sent by the Father, who goes back to the Father, who reigns over all things and always will, he not only took on flesh, but he took on wrath as he hangs on the cross for our sin. All of it so that you and I, dirty, dead, hostile sinners, could be cleansed, brought to life, And reconciled to God. This ought to smack our pride right between the eyes, shouldn't it? Though we know what the Bible says to be true about us, we still, even as saved believers, love the idea of being able to do it ourselves, don't we? I don't need help. I got this. I'll be fine. I've got it under control. I know what I'm doing. But every single one of those phrases has to end in order for you to trust in Jesus. You have to confess. You won't be fine unless you have him. You don't have your sin under control. In fact, you have no clue what you're really doing in this life without guidance from your Savior. And it's only out of this humble reality that we have been served by Christ that we can then begin to serve like Christ. Second, as we saw at the beginning of this passage, Christ-like servants love those whom they serve. Whether you're volunteering at church, washing the dishes at home, Serving at a homeless shelter, if you're doing it with the wrong heart, you're not doing it as a Christ-like servant. You may be doing it to be seen by others, to have others give you some sense of approval. You may be doing it from obligation. You feel guilty if you're not doing it. You may be doing it simply for your own pride, so you can look in the mirror in the morning and say, Look what a good servant I am. But if it's not out of love, it's nothing. Remember the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, which is quite annoying sounds, by the way. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Your service, your servanthood is annoying if it's not done with love. You hear that? Your servanthood, no matter how far you go, Paul just gave a bunch of extremes, didn't he? No matter how far you go with your service, if not done in love, it's annoying. To God. It's just a clanging cymbal or a noisy gong. Your serving is still sin if it's only done for outward appearance. Your serving is still sin if only done for outward appearance. So we're called to love those whom we serve. Third, Christ-like servants lay aside their position and get dirty. We all have a sense of position in life, don't we? We all have ways in which we think quite highly of ourselves. I'm the main financial provider of the house, so I have a high position. I've been promoted time and time again at work, so I have more importance than the others. I'm a pillar of this community or of this church, and I have been here for years, so I rank higher than most people around here. Those who serve like Christ lay aside their positions. They don't use them as leverage of how can I make these people do the servant type Work. Instead, they take off their status, their position, their rights, whatever that may be, in order that they might get dirty. My friends, when's the last time you got dirty? Husbands. How often do we lay aside our right, when we come home from a hard day's work, our right to rest and watch TV and be entertained and instead say, I'm going to go get my hands dirty by washing the dishes or do the laundry or cook dinner. Or those of you who have nice houses, nice cars, nice clothes, when's the last time you submitted that status and were willing to enter into another person's life, a person who might smell bad, or a person who you might even be afraid to touch when you go to serve them? When's the last time you've invited those same people over to your house, that your house might get dirty as you serve someone by showing hospitality? Or how unclean are you willing to get if it means the greatest service of all that you could share the gospel with someone and see them come to know Jesus? As we set our eyes on Jesus and his models for serving, we should find ourselves putting off the outer garments, putting off our high status in life for the sake of getting dirty to serve those around us. Remember, Jesus said, he's the master, we're the servants. If the master is willing to do the dirtiest work that could ever possibly be done by taking on our sin, no work is too dirty for his servants. If the master does the dirtiest work of all, no work is too dirty for those who are following in his footsteps. Last, Christ-like servants serve joyfully. Now this might relate some to serving out of heart of love, but Jesus makes a very specific point here at the end of the passage. Verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. He makes the point abundantly clear. Not only are you supposed to know that you should serve, but you should actually do it. And if you do it, In the right way, what happens? You are blessed. That doesn't mean some material blessing from heaven is going to fall upon you. The word blessed means you're happy. That you have an experience of joy, an experience of satisfaction in your life. And Jesus says you get that joy when you serve others like he did. So let this be a reminder for us. That you may recognize Christ's service done for you. You may lay aside your position in order to get dirty. But if you're not feeling any sense of joy while doing it, you're doing it wrong. If there's no sense of joy in the serving, it's being done in the wrong way to some extent. That doesn't mean you have to stop serving. It means you figure out what's going on in your heart that prevents you from finding joy in the serving. Maybe you've grown calloused to what Christ has done for you. You may mentally agree with it, but maybe your heart's grown calloused to the reality of how you first have been served by Christ. Maybe you've lost love for the people that you're serving Whatever it is, you need to repent of it and come back to Christ's example, Christ's models for us. If the Son of God can joyfully, joyfully humble himself to the point of dying on the cross, by the grace of God, you and I can joyfully be humbled to the point of doing whatever dirty work he calls us to do. So brothers and sisters, my call, my urge, my appeal to you this morning is to set your eyes on the foot-washing Jesus, the cross-carrying Christ, and follow in his footsteps. The one who had all things in his hands lowered himself to washing feet. The one who always has been and always will be took on flesh and became sin for you and for me so that we can be declared righteous, forgiven, cleansed. Let that service done for you by Christ serve you, stir you that you might serve like Christ. That you might look at the people around you and ask, how can I serve like Christ? And may you love these people as you serve them. May you be willing to lay aside your high status, your high positions for the sake that you might serve them. And may you be willing to get as dirty as you're called to get in the process of going to them and being with them. And in the end, may you find yourself joyful as you serve like Christ. Will you follow the footsteps of our foot washing Jesus our cross carrying Christ and do as we ought to do and serve each other. Let's pray together. Father we thank you for the model that Jesus sets before us. May we be humbled every day. Not just that Jesus would wash feet, but that Jesus would become sin. May that be a reminder for us that no work, no service is too dirty for us walking in his footsteps. If he can take on sin, we can take on whatever it is you call us to. So help us. Help us as we go throughout our week. Help us as we go throughout every single day of our lives. Help us to look around and see how can I lay aside everything I think I'm owed and do the dirty work and do it out of love and do it with the experience of joy knowing that we're walking in the same path that Christ has already walked. Help us this morning and as we go throughout our lives to do this work and do it in the right way. May we become Christ-like servants in this world. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to come up here for our final song.